We are in the final week of our five-week series working through the book, Making God, Being with God for the World. And one of the, um, one of the main metaphors that we've been drawing on to think about uh, Christian spirituality and, and mission is that of breathing, of inhaling and exhaling. That inhaling is like our uh, prayer and, and study and solitude and listening to God. And the out- exhale is sort of like our, our mission, the part that's going out into the world and for the sake of the world. And um, through our study so far, the first four weeks have really been about and, and looking at those practices that are sort of like the inhale, what you might call quote-unquote spirituality or uh, those parts of prayer. And uh, they're about the inhale. But this morning, I want to talk to and about how all of that is related so intimately with the exhale, with the, the mission part. And so that's where we're going this morning. See, the cover I, I chose for this book, um, I did on purpose that it's, it's not sort of a, a, maybe a cliche image of what you'd think of when you think of spirituality. It's a, you've got a bunch of people, a crowd of people uh, in a busy street. And we're asking the question, what does it mean to be with God not just for our own sake, sort of self-indulgent spirituality, but actually for the sake of the whole world. Um, see, we can, we can focus on, on um, spirituality in a way that, that really is sort of inward focused. It's sort of about me being sort of healthy and, and my own well-being. And it's true that, you know, prayer and taking a, a day off every week and Sabbath rest, that's going to be good for us. We have to remember that even though it is good for us, our, our spiritual practices are not just for us. They're actually for the sake of the world. Uh, in a world where spirituality does look like that cliche image, um, the reality is that Christian spirituality is not so easily summed up. See, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was a real question one of the teachers of the law asked. And he said this, first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, strength. But he doesn't stop at that point. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus does the most interesting thing with it. Jesus says there's no commandment, singular. He takes these two commandments and calls them there's no commandment greater than these. So you see, for Jesus, he says you can't authentically love God and that not get turned out into love for neighbor. He calls these two commandments one command. It's pretty important for us to see that. And that's why I said Christian spirituality is not just about loving God. What we may say the prayer part, the the worship, the solitude, the connecting with God... That's kind of like our loving God, but if that doesn't get turned out into the world, we haven't understood what Jesus is really calling us to yet. This morning, we'll see how these are inseparable, our love for God and love for others. Then uh, we're really going to look at three things this morning. Basically, that it begins and ends with love. When we talk about spirituality and mission, it begins and ends with love. Second is that prayer is the work of mission. It is a work of mission. And third, we'll see that our mission must be shaped around Jesus' own mission. Let's pray as we uh, prepare our hearts for this. God, we are thankful 
that we can gather and that you speak to us through your spirit-inspired word, that you breathed out this text, filled it with life, and reveal yourself through it. So God, we want to meet you this morning. As we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray that your name would be lifted up, that it would be known as holy in our lives personally, uh, in our church corporately. And God, we want to see your name lifted up and be honored as holy throughout this city and actually throughout the world. We thank you as, uh, as we read in Philippians 2 that there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And so, Lord, we pray that um, your name would be hallowed in us and through us this morning and the weeks, years to come. Amen. So first, it begins and ends with love. Um, finding a rhythm of spiritual practices, scripture reading, prayer, silence, and solitude, these are about immersing ourselves in God's deep love for us. Uh, Brennan Manning uh, tells a story of, a, of an old gentleman in Ireland, and um, I think it's like a, an uncle and a nephew. I can't remember the story really clearly right now. But the uncle, the old uncle, is kind of, you know, the, the, the sun is sort of setting, and, and his nephew looks over and sees him just grinning ear to ear. And, and he's asked, Uncle, what, why the big grin? What's going on there? And his answer is just this, God is very fond of me. My wife and I were talking about that, um, the sense that this man had. When he thinks of God, the thought that comes to his mind is not just that God loves him in a sort of vague, abstract way that he can't wrap his head around. It's very personal. He understands that God likes him, that God delights in him. He's able to say, God is very fond of me. The question is, can you say that too? I have a feeling a lot of us walk through life without being able to say that. We, we think a lot of different things about what God would think of us. You know, my kids, I am very fond of my little boys. They drive me crazy. They disobey me regularly. They actually hurt each other too, but I am still very fond of them. I want the best for them, and actually I want the best from them too. And I don't always get the best from them, but I'm very fond of them no matter what. You will mess up with God. Yeah, you will, actually. God is still very fond of you. You know, you know how deeply God loves us. To know his smile over us, as Harry's going to be talking about in the next few weeks, I believe that that is our desperate need, is to live in the love of God. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, if, you've, if you've, you are now in Christ, Paul will often say, Paul believed that too, the deep need for the church to understand and live with this sense of God is very fond of me. Listen to what he prays for the Ephesian church. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Where are we rooted? What makes us who we are as God's children? It's love. Love expressed through Jesus self-giving on the cross for you. And that's it, period rooted and established in God's love for you. But then he goes on. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power 
together with all of God's people to grasp how high and long and wide and deep is the love of Christ. But you see, it's not just knowing this in theory and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You notice the two things he does with knowledge there? To know it, it surpasses knowledge. What does he mean? In Jewish understanding of knowing is a very deep, intimate, experiential thing. To know God's love is to experience a God is very fond of me sort of life. It's a personal knowledge. It's a love, we're told, that we can't even with our minds comprehend. He says it's immeasurable. You can't understand it. You're not, you can't wrap your head around it, but I want you to know it. I want you to experience it. I want you to live in that. Why? Paul says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Here's the point. We don't live toward God's love like we're trying to get God's attention, like we're trying to get in his good books. We live from a place of resting in his love. If we don't get that, we will constantly be in tension with ourselves and with what God is calling us to do. It's from that place of deep love. That's what leads us to love God back. And that will compel us then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we talked about in the first section of the book how if we practice the spiritual disciplines, things like prayer or or reading and listening, solitude, uh, even giving to the poor, those kinds of things, if we practice that from any other place than knowing the deep love of God for us, we will slide off probably into two opposite ditches. On the one side, we'll practice these things and we'll get it. And we'll start thinking, wow, pretty good at this. And why can't everyone else get it either? And we'll start looking down our noses at other people. And pride will seep into our hearts because we believe that we've done something great to become great prayers or whatever it happens to be. But there's the other side too. The ditch on the other side of the road is I failed again. You know what I'm supposed to do. I keep failing, keep failing. And you beat yourself up because you think you've... You, you, you must have done this better. I, I didn't get it perfect. And so I end up self-shaming. When we understand the good news of Jesus, we discover that God loves us without our ever having to earn it. We find that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we cleaned ourselves up, we find that Jesus, God the Son, lays down his life voluntarily so he could be forgiven and made new. And it's from there that God transforms us to love him and love others. St. Augustine, uh, in the fourth century theologian, he, he describes sin as homo incurvatus in se, a Latin phrase that means the human turning in on him or herself. Egocentric, self-centric, my life is about me. And he says that is the essence of what sin is. But you see, what God does in his grace is to reverse this. Through his redeeming grace, we are redeemed for his purposes. And he straightens our back and lifts our eyes. So no longer are we looking at ourselves, but we're looking out at the world. We're paying attention to what's going on around us. And with the love of God that we rest in, we're saying, God, what are you calling me to do? How can I join in in loving others like you love me? 
you know, if we go back to um, the Lord's Prayer that we've been looking at, we've been praying and studying, we see that Jesus teaches us to pray in this way. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. That addresses my heart bent to say, my kingdom come, my will be done. Right? It, it, it changes us. It, it transforms our hearts, reorients us away from self-centeredness and helps us to straighten up and lift our eyes again. Um, I, I quoted in my book, I quoted from Eugene Peterson. It was a quote that I think confused some people. <laughs> but let me explain it a little bit more now. Eugene Peterson calls prayer an ascetic practice, basically a practice of self denial. How is that? Well, it works like this. Um, Prayer, if we mean the Lord's prayer, it will cause us to die to ourselves. It will cause me to die to my selfish agenda. I'll actually have to put my kingdom aside, my will aside, if I'm going to adopt God's kingdom and God's will as center in my life. It calls us to die to the propensity to make life about myself. And what it opens up, though, is it straightens us, and now we can live out the resurrection life, the new life in Christ that we had. You know, I was meeting with one of our young adults this last week, and, and I just, he just always brings me a, a bunch of questions. And um, one of the things that he's been wrestling with in his life is there's these things that he enjoys, you know, rock climbing, you know, swing dancing. There's a whole bunch of things that he's really good at, too. Really, really talented young man, new Christian. And, and, but he came to me concerned about how, how to use these areas of enjoyment of his life. Does he have to put them aside? What, is, what does he do with them? Um, and so we were working through, and he, and he was working through this week. How does he repent of when these things maybe take on too big a role in his, in his heart? And so he prayerfully wrote out a list. Um, I can't remember what it was calling. I, th- I think it said reducing self-centeredness was the title of his kind of list that he made. And he listed the areas in his life that were competing for first place, or they were competing that maybe these things would become more important to me than, than God is, and center of my life. And he, he allowed me to share this, by the way. And so I, he let me see his list. And, and he, let me read you some of the things that he put on his list. Take more interest in others. He's doing these activities. He's going, maybe I'll not just get into the activity itself, but actually look around those that I'm, I'm, I'm with. How, how do I pay more attention to them? He says this as well. Pay attention and listen intently to every word the other person says. He also had a, a part that said, don't, don't boast about where I'm achieving success, maybe, but focus on my discipleship to Jesus. You know, for my friend, he was beginning to see how his a life of discipleship was calling him not to just give up areas of his life. I mean, that may be true for some of us in some ways that will give some things up. But to say, God, how are you calling me to use these areas of interest, these good things that you've given me to bring you glory, to move myself out of the center so that you can have more space in there. Boy, he's learning to see his life as bound up in the mission of God. And my prayer is that all of us would be looking at life in that sort of way. So yes, we live in the deep love of God for us. And that is what enables us and drives us then to love God and love others. And we'll see that the loving God and and our prayer, that kind of spirituality element, isn't just to prepare us for mission. It's central to it. Here's the second point. Prayer is mission work. Um, It's not just a place to be refueled 
And then we go back and we do the real work of mission and leave prayer kind of in the, in the background here. Prayer is absolutely an essential part of mission. Here's what Ken Shigematsu writes. Um, in a very real way, prayer is a work itself. It is the work of ministry. Prayer is a powerful force in shaping the world. Think of the great missionary, Paul. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. The work of joining in God's mission includes the work of prayer. And it is work. And it is central to our missional task. But after directing us about what putting that armor on looks like, Paul then says this, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. You see how central, praying for all the Lord's people, central prayer is in the mission that God has given us. Um, Biblical scholar Michael Michael Holmes, he puts it well. He says, if we learn to pray with Paul, we'll learn to pray for others. It will be for the world. Um, In his book, God in My Everything, Ken Shigematsu goes on to tell a story. I think it illustrates this point well. So let me read this to you. Sean Litton, who serves with the nonprofit organization International Justice Mission, he tells the story of a young woman, Elizabeth, it's not her real name, who was enslaved in a brothel in Thailand. Lured by the promise of a good job, Elizabeth has been, had been tricked into going to Thailand and ended up being forced into sex slavery. Members of International Justice Mission had been praying that God would intervene to cause the barriers to fall away so they could offer assistance and aid to the girls who'd been trafficked. In answer to their prayer, they received um, cooperation with some of the local officials, and that was a miracle in itself leading to the rescue of Elizabeth. After rescuing her, they discovered a small script scratched on the wall of the tiny room she had been locked inside. Sean asked a co-worker to translate the characters for him into English. They read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. Some of you might recognize that. It's a, it's a psalm. The, the team learned that Elizabeth was a Christ follower with a heart to serve God. She had written those words on her wall as a visible reminder of her daily prayer for God to rescue her from the brothel. When Sean heard the words of scripture being read, he was stunned to realize that all of the thousands of young girls being trafficked into Thailand, his team had rescued the one who had been specifically praying to God for deliverance. Overcome by the mercy and kindness of God, Sean broke down and wept. In spite of all the challenges they had faced, the barriers and the complexity of working with local officials, God had led them to Elizabeth a clear answer to their prayers and to hers. 
Ken sums it up in this way. He says, in a mysterious way that we don't fully understand, and we don't, God uses our prayer to heal and transform the world. Prayer is an act of reverence, but as Karl Barth has noted, it's also an act of defiance against the way things are. In prayer, we join the transformation of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of our Lord, which is a quote from Revelation 11.15. He's right. In prayer, we are transforming God's world. Prayer is not just a rejuvenation and a refreshment. It's not just for me. Prayer is for mission. It is for the world, and it's an integral part of the work. And now we need to look at that work a little more specifically, the work where really Jesus' mission shapes how we go about mission as well. In John chapter 20, uh, John, the theologian, the disciple of Jesus, he, he's, a, he's, he's really a theologian of creation, as N.T. Wright calls him. If you don't understand that he is drawing on the creation narrative heavily, you won't really understand the gospel of John. So let's, let's read this uh, with that in mind. Here's what we read. On the evening of the first day of the week, where have we heard first day language in the Bible before? God's very first work of creation. We hear God begins his creation on the first day. Interesting. Let's just hold on to that. On the first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sin, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Boy, this, this section is so rich and complex. But here's what I want to us to dive into. What does it mean to say that as Jesus was, was sent, so we are sent? How do we make sense of that? First of all, when Jesus says, peace be with you, and he says it twice. When we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, we find out that God's peace, his shalom that he intends for creation is that there is perfect harmony between us and God, us and others, us and our own selves, and us with the rest of creation. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's not just greeting them, I don't think. I think he's saying the resurrection, this is about making that peace become a reality now. It's about renewing God's shalom. But notice the disciples, they don't recognize him the first time. He says, peace be with you. Then he shows in his hands and his side. They realize this isn't a ghost. It's, it's not a figment of their imagination. This really is Jesus, real, resurrected, physical body that they can touch, and they are overwhelmed. See, Jesus' resurrection body is a foretaste of the way God is remaking his new, uh, his broken but good earth. Jesus' physical body and his physical resurrection are the first fruits, we're told. This is what our resurrection will be like, too. He's got scars he can show them, but somehow he can appear 
even when the door is locked. He can, his body is a real physical body. It even bears scars, and yet it transcends the physicality we know now. It's a picture, it's a hint, it's a foretaste of what's to come for us. But here's what we really need to see is that Jesus' resurrection body means that God has already begun his work of new creation, of redeeming and restoring what was broken. His body becomes that picture of God's space and our space once again overlapping and interlocking as they were always intended to do. As we read of in the Garden of Eden and as we look at in the final chapters of the book of Revelation that God dwells with us. Perfect harmony, that shalom that was there. So for us to be sent as Jesus was sent is to be a people of peace. People who pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and then to seek that peace in our relationships, even now. To see uh, healing and restoration happen, to seek fairness and justice in our worlds, to see others rightly related to God, to tell them the good news that in Jesus there is salvation and forgiveness. In his most famous sermon, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We are a people of peace like Jesus is. And we saw that at the center of peacemaking is knowing we're forgiven and offering that forgiveness to our debtors. But second, notice how Jesus makes this peace possible. How God's renewal comes about. What does Jesus show them on his hands and his side? It's scars, isn't it? We must see this. God's new world only dawns through the self-giving love of Jesus, what he accomplishes on the cross. In dying, Jesus exhausts the power of evil in his own body. On the cross, he's exalted and shown to be the world's true king. And in his resurrection, he shows that the way of self-giving love truly is the way of victory. Now, I think that this is what the final, that really difficult saying at the end, if you forgive anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you don't, they're not. I think this is what it's all about. See, when Jesus is giving them this commission, he's, he's telling them to go, and it's in the context of evangelism, of being good news people. And Ben Witherington III, he, he, he says this, forgiving or retaining sins is simply a natural component of the calling of people to repentance and offering of forgiveness in Christ. Think of it. When I tell someone about the good news of Jesus, um, I can't hold out to them an offer of forgiveness and new life if they don't actually want to humble themselves before Jesus and repent of their life walking away from God and experience life under his lordship. I can't offer them forgiveness in any other place, in any other name than that of Jesus. And that's what we see the apostles go on to do. Peter in Acts 4.12 says this, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. He's saying this, if you come to Jesus, align your life under his grace and under his gracious lordship, you're forgiven. If you don't want to do that, I've got, no, I've got no forgiveness to offer you. Your sin stays with you. I've got no other place to, to send you. To be sent as Jesus is sent is to hold out the offer of life that comes through Jesus and no one else. 
but it means something else too. Just as Jesus' mission involved costly sacrifice, he's showing them his scars, isn't he? It will cost us too. To be sent as Jesus was sent means us in self-giving service to others. There's no other way that they, the world is going to experience God's peace unless it's as I, so you, with regards to the pain of costly sacrifice as well. In the early centuries of the church, the, um, did, the church often didn't have enough to eat. It's just, you know, we read about that in 2 Corinthians. Paul is, is, is writing ahead to the church in Corinth, and he's asking them to prepare an offering. What's the offering for? It's for the brothers and sisters in Judea, in Jerusalem, who are starving to death at that moment. They don't have enough food. They've been persecuted. They've lost their jobs, maybe. And Paul is going around, and he's writing, and he says this. Look at the Macedonian church, the Philippians. That's who he's talking about there. These Philippians allow their, their poverty, and they are impoverished already, to well up into extravagant generosity. And then Paul says, just as Jesus was rich, he became poor for your sake. So that's his logic. He says, like Jesus gave sacrificially, I want you to give sacrificially for the sake of others. Um, it's estimated, um, uh, historian Michael Rickett estimates that in the city of Rome, in the year 250 AD, 10,000 Christians in the city, uh, they would fast, each of these Christians would fast an average of about 100 days a year in order to provide a million meals that year to In the early church, people fasted one, two, three days a week because they didn't have extra just to give from. They were giving from their own poverty for the sake of others. One of the reasons Christianity spread so rapidly through the ancient world is that as Christians reached out in love and service, people went, we've never seen anything like that. What, what motivates you to love others in, in that sort of way? Could this Jesus they speak of the one they said is God who dies on a cross and rises again? Could that be the real deal? Yes, it all begins and ends with love, but it's self-giving love, costly love. Third thing we need to see, there's three. <laughs> Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. A few things here. Again, this is resonance to the creation story. We see that God breathes life to bring the human to life in that beginning. Here Jesus is symbolically reenacting the creation narrative to say, you are now a new creature because of what I've just accomplished for you in my death and resurrection. And you will be ministers of that new creation, living into what God will finally and fully bring about. And that tells us something about Jesus. <laughs> John wants us to see that Jesus is divine. That the same God who breathed life into Adam in that first Genesis narrative is the God who now gives new life to those who receive the Holy Spirit as they trust in Jesus with their lives. Did you know that you're part of the new creation if you've received Jesus? You are new creations in him, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. But there's more than that. Jesus, in his um, baptism, received the Spirit to guide and help and lead him and so do we? What does that mean for us? I want to take us back to John 14. That's where Jesus first promises the coming of the Spirit. 
And he says this, I'm going I'm I'm to send the Spirit to fill you guys, and because of that, you'll accomplish more than I did. Listen to verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. What, what are these greater things? Jesus says, as, as I go away to the Father, I will send my spirit on the whole people of God. I will be working now from inside of all of you. But then we might wonder, well, what does it mean that we'll do greater works than Jesus? I mean, how could we possibly do greater miraculous things than him? I mean, he raised Lazarus from the dead, and he'd been dead for four days. He was stinking dead. And he raised him from the dead. How could we do greater things than these? Here's what we need to notice. In John's gospel, the miracles Jesus does are called simeon, signs. In the other gospels, they're called dunamis, where we get dynamite from. They're they're mighty works or miracles. He calls them signs. That's not the word John uses here. He uses the word erga, work, the work I'm doing. Ben Witherington, I think, is right when he says it this way. The disciples will go beyond what Jesus did in evangelizing the world and bringing about its salvation. The greater works of mission are possible only if Jesus hears prayers for help and sends the Spirit. Now, of course, we see in the disciples, in the book of Acts, they actually do, by the Spirit's work in them, perform amazing miracles. We might even say, many of us might believe that miracles are a part of the church's mission from the beginning. But what Jesus means in this passage isn't miracles specifically. It's the whole work of mission. That your function to go into the world empowered by the Spirit will have a greater impact than Jesus, one localized individual, could ever have on his own. In prayer, we ask Jesus, and he answers by sending his Spirit to work in and through us. Doing these greater works, participating with God in his mission, this requires us to be sent as Jesus was sent in one other way too. That's really key. In John 1.14, we read that the word, meaning God the Son, Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as it could be translated, as Eugene Peterson says, moved into the neighborhood. Now in in What does this mean? Jesus, God the Son, became a human person. He took on flesh and blood. In in, in theological language, you call this the incarnation or infleshment. God comes to us in flesh. Now, for us to be sent as Jesus was means that just as Jesus moved into the neighborhood, he was in a localized, particular setting, rubbing shoulders with people, We need to be representatives of the good news wherever God plants us to. And it requires our own bodies, our words, our enfleshment of the gospel into our neighborhoods if we're going to make that good news known. People need to see the gospel lived out in us, in our neighborhoods. Um, Another one of our young adults was, I saw him just sitting at coffee with a whole bunch of friends, people I've never met before, I assume co-workers, uh, friends of his. He was enfleshing the gospel. He's living out in relationship the good news. That was uh, Mike Coulter sitting around the table with these people, and, 
And he was showing them what it looked like to be a Christian by rubbing shoulders with them in tangible ways. See, it's easy for us to think mission means somewhere else. It means someone going somewhere. But God is calling us to be deeply rooted in our neighborhoods, to make the gospel known in tangible, earthy ways, we might say, right where we are now. This doesn't mean that we don't send people to far-off places to where people have never heard of Jesus. We need to do that too. But when a missionary goes, just think of it. What do they do? They've got to learn the language. They'll adopt the cultural dress of that place. They'll learn the cultural narratives of the time and space that God has planted them in. They will have to inflesh the gospel there, just like you and I have to inflesh the gospel wherever we are too. Being sent as Jesus was sent means our whole lives, our bodies, what we do with our bodies is bound up in the mission of God. We can't divorce that from, we can't sort of, I mentioned the idea of like sending sort of Bible darts from outside of the church wall. We don't just do like pamphlet things and, you know, throw pamphlets at people. That's not how gospelizing works. It's by being in relationship with people, uh, in fleshing the gospel in real life. Um, Barry Jones, in his book, Dwell, he says, don't invite someone to church until you've invited them over for dinner. He's talking about making the good news known in your neighborhood, in homes, as you rub shoulders with everyone you meet. Um, I like what St. Teresa of Avila says. She says, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And I like this part. And yours are the hands which are about to bless us now. If you walked by an ordinary garbage dump in the first century, um, you would see and probably hear something that to us we wouldn't expect today. Babies. We have records of in the ancient worlds... um, Parents were advised, if it's a baby boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw her away. And they would. And so at the garbage dump, there would be babies crying, left there, abandoned. They called it infanticide. Um, But opportunistic people would come by. People say, "I, I can raise this child, and when they're big enough, I can sell them into slavery. Or someone who's running a brothel or who has, you know, um, temple prostitution in in the sort of pagan religions was really common. I can raise this person and and they'll be sex slaves for us. But you know who else went to the dump? Christians did. And they took the babies and they raised them as their own. These Christians knew that they had been so loved by God that they couldn't do anything else but turn their lives back in love for God to love God for their neighbors, to be Jesus' hands and feet right in their neighborhood. They lived out the gospel in costly ways. And then their lives begged questions. Why are you living like this? How can you be so generous to others you don't even know? Why do you forgive instead of retaliate? And their answer, given with gentleness and respect, is that God loved us like this first. That in Jesus we're so forgiven so we forgive. In Christ, God has been so generous that we have, we couldn't do anything else but be generous to others. So yes, it really is about love from start to finish. You are so deeply loved, and that's demonstrated in Jesus' self-giving for you and me on the cross, that we have no other option but to turn our lives back to love for God and love for others.
We connect with God so that we're transformed into lovers who live joyfully giving ourselves away for the sake of the world. I want to I pray. I want us to pray. And I'm going to pray the prayer that, that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. Let's do that together. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, if you'd like to stay for prayer, you're welcome to come to the front and myself and some of our other people who'd like to pray with you would love to do that. But I need to send you out now with, with this blessing. Go knowing how deeply loved you are, that you would turn that love back out for the sake of the world. Amen.